Amen. Thank you so much, brother. Good morning, family. It's a good day today, amen? I just have to say that these past three weeks have went by very quick for me. I guess when you're having fun, things go by quickly, isn't that right? It's been a wonderful time here with you folks, and uh, today is my last day with you, and um, God has a special blessing for us as we open His Word. I invite you to open your hearts to let the Holy Spirit minister to your life today. We're dealing with a message that is very solemn in nature. All right, but this morning, the gospel in the seven last plagues. Now, this one is very solemn, as I mentioned, and so we need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And friends, we're going to see something amazing this morning from God's Word. We're going to see that even in the scariest part of the Bible, the love of Jesus is demonstrated. Amen? I invite you to take your cell phones and put it on silent. And I invite you to bow your heads as we pray together. <clears throat> Dear Lord, precious Jesus, thank you, Lord, that in you we find refuge, we find safety, security, satisfaction, and salvation. Thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to come into this sanctuary this morning, this safe place. Lord, we understand that church is not a rest home for saints to fall asleep and die, but the church is a hospital for sinners to receive healing and life. And Lord, we have come because we recognize that we are all sinners in need of healing physical, mental, emotional, and most of all, spiritual. And so would you please come now and bring healing to us. As we open your word, please, Lord, minister to our hearts. Help us to see Jesus more clearly than ever before. In Christ's name we pray this prayer. Amen. The gospel in the seven last plagues. We are going to study one of the most misunderstood topics in the Bible. It's not an easy topic. It's not a topic that I necessarily like preaching about, but God has placed this topic of the seven last plagues in the Bible. In fact, the seven last plagues are found in two whole chapters in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and the reason why I believe God places this in His Word is to reveal to us his holy hatred towards sin. But at the same time, it also reveals his infinite love for sinners, for his children. You see, friends, the seven last plagues are the most terrible manifestations of the wrath of God in the Bible. As I mentioned, there are two whole chapters, Revelation 15 and 16, devoted to this subject for us to carefully consider. And this topic, misunderstood, causes us either to hate God or to be afraid of God. When we misunderstand it, causes us to hate Him or be afraid of Him. But this topic, rightly understood, will draw us closer 
to His infinite heart of love. And so it's my prayer this morning that as we rightfully understand the seven last plagues, that we will experience the latter. We will experience being drawn to the heart of God's infinite love. And so with that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to our opening scripture found in the book of John, chapter 3. John, what chapter are we going to? <clears throat> John, the third chapter. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in John, chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. John, chapter 3. And notice what it says in verse 16. If you're there, would you let me know by saying amen? <clears throat> the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. This verse is known as the most precious verse in the Bible. And friends, I want you to notice that in this verse, we see God's love demonstrated in two ways. Number one, God so loved that, number one, He gave His Son to die for us. But the second way we find the love of God in this verse is that he will allow the wicked to perish. And make no mistake about it, friends. When the wicked perish, that is a demonstration of the love of God. It's not just a demonstration of God's justice. It's also a demonstration of his mercy. You see, God's justice and God's mercy are two sides of the exact same coin of the character of God. His mercy is demonstrated in justice, and His justice is also demonstrated in mercy. And so we find that in John 3.16, God is love, and His love is demonstrated in sacrificing Himself for us to be saved, but also allowing the wicked to perish. And we're going to see why that is in just a moment. Both of them are acts of mercy and justice, but of these two God wants the first one to be, our, to be the motivating factor in our service to Him. In other words, God does not want us to serve Him because we are afraid to perish. He desires for us to serve Him because we love Him because He first loved us. And then it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love does what? It casts out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, if we are serving God because we're afraid of Him, our love for Him is not perfect. It's not mature. But when we truly understand His love for us, that love as it comes in, it pushes out fear from our lives so that we no longer serve God because we're afraid to be lost, and nor are we going to serve God because of the reward of heaven. We're going to serve God because of God. 
because of His love. And, his, and we love Him as a result. And the Bible tells us in the next verse, we love Him because He first loved us. And so love, friends, is the motivating factor that makes our service to God acceptable. Not the fear of hell, nor the reward of heaven, but simply love. Can you say amen? Now, friends, this topic of the seven last plagues has caused many people to look upon Revelation as a scary book, <coughs> a book of doom and gloom. But friends, Revelation is not a book of curses. It's in reality a book of blessings. You see, there are seven plagues in Revelation, but did you also know that there are seven blessings in Revelation? I want you to notice them as we lay the foundation for our study. In Revelation 1, verse 3, here's the first blessing. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And then the second blessing is found in Revelation 14, 13. It says, Blessed are they are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. That's the second blessing. Then notice the third blessing in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. Jesus says, Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Then the fourth blessing, Revelation 19, 9. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then the fifth in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Then the sixth blessing in Revelation 22, 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And then the last blessing in verse 12 of Revelation, or excuse me, verse 14 of Revelation 22. Blessed are they which do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And so we find, friends, that for every plague in Revelation, there is also a blessing. Can you say amen? amen? Revelation is not a book of curses. It's a book of blessings. And the only mention of a curse in the book of Revelation is the fact that there will be no more curse. In Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, and there should be no more curse. The curse is reversed. And the reason why is because at Calvary, the blessed one, Jesus Christ, took our curse upon himself so that we who are cursed might be blessed. Do you remember? What did they put on the head of Jesus? crown of thorns. Do you know where the thorns came from? From the curse. Now, where did that curse come from in Genesis chapter 3? It came as a result of the sin that we have chosen. So mankind's sin, and the Bible says that the ground was cursed, and it brought forth thorns and thistles. And we see those thorns and thistles being placed upon the brow of the blessed one. He took our curse so that we could have his blessing. Amen. Oh, are you thankful for Jesus this morning? Injustice to one brought mercy to all. That's what happened at Calvary. But friends, in the light of this amazing love, for many, the seven last plagues are very unsettling because it seems so foreign and even perhaps inconsistent with a loving God and the nature of a loving God. 
But friends, let's consider God's true character of love. What is the true nature of God's character? What is the true nature of love? Notice what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And this, my friends, is something that many atheists are asking about. And many people are atheists because they don't understand what we're about to teach this morning. And so, you may not be an atheist, you may be a believer, but, uh, and, and you may not have a problem with this. Maybe you know the answer, but as I said before, I can say with a great degree of certainty that there is someone that you know that doesn't know what we're about to learn. And so, listen very carefully. The only thing you have to pay in this seminar is pay attention, amen? Not just for your sake, but for the sake of the person God wants to use you to witness and share this with. And so I hope you're writing these scriptures down. What is the nature of God's character of love? The Bible says in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, the Lord God, what? Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, transgression and sin. And so we find that God's character, first of all, is that He is a God of mercy. But then the last part says, and that will by no means clear the guilty. That shows that He is also a God of justice. God's character of love is that He is 100% merciful and 100% just 100% of the time. God's mercy and God's justice are two sides of the same coin of the character of love. As I said before, His mercy is demonstrated in justice, and His justice is also demonstrated in mercy. It says, He will by no means clear the guilty. Why? Because He's full of mercy and graciousness and long-suffering. By the way, what does the word long-suffering mean? What does it mean? to be long-suffering. Friends, long-suffering simply means to suffer long. That's what it means. Patience, yes, but more specifically, to be long-suffering means to suffer long. In other words, here's the point, friends. God has suffered for a long time because sin not only affects us, the guilty partakers, sin also affects God the innocent bystander. And so God has suffered so long with sin. It has caused Him so much pain. And the Bible tells us that there's going to come a day of reckoning upon evil and sin and all the suffering it has brought to the universe, not just to the world. And so remember, friends, as we, as we think about the character of God, He is a merciful God, but He's also a God of justice. And both of these two characteristics are in harmony with, its, with each other. In other words, God does not have mood swings. Can you say amen? Some of us have mood swings. Not God. God's justice and mercy, as I said, is two sides of the same coin. How? Let me, let me share with you how, friends. Very clearly, you can see it at the cross. The perfect life of Christ satisfied the justice of God's law. But at the same time, His vicarious death provided mercy to man. 
When you look at the cross, you see justice and mercy kissing and embracing. The perfect life of Jesus satisfied the justice of the law because he perfectly kept God's law, which is a fair law, a reasonable law, because it's a law of love. And while keeping the law perfectly, he still died, even though he did not break the law, he still died for us, thus providing mercy to the entire human race. So God does not have mood swings, friends. His justice and mercy are consistent 100% of the time. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Well, friends, listen. When you study the Bible, you'll find that at times, the cup of wrath becomes full against wickedness, that it ends up overflowing in punishment. We find glimpses of this throughout the Bible. For example, the flood was, was an example of this. The wickedness and the, the, the corruption of man was so great that the cup of God's wrath became full, and it overflowed with a worldwide flood. It was an act of justice, but it was also an act of mercy. Not only that, but even during the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says that the cities were given over to sexual immorality. In other words, they're completely controlled, given over to it. And God saw the wickedness, and the cup of His wrath overflowed in judgments. But those judgments were also an act of mercy. During the times of the plagues of Egypt, the cup of God's wrath overflowed as the Egyptians enslaved the people of God, and the cup overflowed in judgments in the form of ten plagues upon Egypt. And friends, we're going to see this morning that God's just, just judgments are an act of mercy. Mercy is demonstrated in, in judgments, and we're going to discover that the gospel of Christ can actually be found in the seven last plagues. The seven plagues demonstrates the love of Jesus. And as we see that love, even in the plagues, His perfect love will cast out fear from our hearts. Let me share with you now five reasons. How many? Five reasons why the seven plagues reveal the gospel of Christ. Reason number one is that the purpose of the plagues or the purpose of the destruction of wickedness is for the eternal security of the righteous. The eternal security of who? You see, friends, God's mercy compels Him to pour His just wrath in destruction of sin. Why? For our sakes. You see, mankind, the human race, are not only perpetuators of evil, we are also the victims of evil as well. We're the perpetuators, but we're also the victims of sin and of suffering. And so what God does, friends, in the seven last plagues is that His justice is, is meted out upon sin for the sake and the protection of its repentful victims. Let me say that again. Justice is meted out upon sin for the sake and protection of its repentful victims. But even in the destruction of the wicked, it is a strange act for God. 
You can write that down. In Isaiah 28, verse 21, Bible says it's his strange act. Because God, by nature, the nature of love is to create, not destroy. It is to bless, not to curse. But friends, I want you to think, for, um, uh, think with me right now. Not just right now, think with me all the time. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> because God is love, He must hate that which causes harm to those He loves so much. Let me say that again. God is love, and if He's truly a God of love, therefore He must hate that which harms the objects of His love. For example, I love children. How many of you love the little ones? Oh, I love children. My wife and I, we love kids. We'd love to have kids one day. And I, wasn't, I didn't mean to bring this up, but might as well, since I'm right here, pray for us. We've been trying to have kids for the last six years. has been working out. We've been praying. We've done everything humanly possible. We, every time we do meetings in different places, we're always adopting the kids of the church. We have nieces and nephews all over the conference, all over this place. Love kids, but I'd love to have one made in my own image. And we've been praying about it. Let me tell you, friends, God always answers prayer. Amen? Amen. And we've been praying about it, and, and for now, God has answered our prayer, and the answer is not right now. It may very well be no. And that sometimes is difficult. But whether God says yes or not now or no, we're going to trust God anyway because Jesus is enough. Amen? Anyways, I love kids, and if I truly love kids, I must therefore hate child molestation. It is impossible to love kids without hating child molestation. Are you with me? In the same way, if God is truly love, therefore He must hate that which hurts the ones He loves so much. I love druggies, and if I truly love druggies, I must hate drugs because it hurts druggies. Are you with me? And so when you think about the seven last plagues and the wrath of God poured out upon wickedness, it's because He's love. And if He's love, He must hate that which causes so much pain to the objects of His love. And those who choose not to allow God to separate them from sin will end up perishing with their sin. You see, Instead of receiving the promise of blessing, the wicked rather will choose the punishment of the curse. And God is love, and love will never force someone to separate from sin. God allows the wicked to hang on to that which they stubbornly want in their lives. And so when God destroys sin, He has no choice but to allow those who cling to it to perish with it, because He would never force them to let it go. And so, number one reason why there's good news in the seven last plagues is the purpose of it. 
It's for the sake of the universe to protect us from sin and its evil results. The second reason. <coughs> reason number two is that the punishment of the curse will be in proportion to the crime. The punishment of the curse will be in proportion to the crime, and the punishment will never exceed the crime. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. And, the, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or to, uh, to do according to his will shall be beaten with, what? Many stripes. So the one that knows but choose not to do it, the Bible says his punishment, he's beaten with many stripes. But then notice. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. The one that didn't know, and yet did things deserving of stripes, he's not going to get many. He's going to get few. Why? For everyone to whom much is given, from him what? Much will be required. God holds us accountable to the light we have the op and the opportunities that have been given to us. And so the one that knows but cho chooses not to do it are beaten with many stripes. He that doesn't know and yet commits sin will be beaten with few stripes. In other words, the point is this. The punishment will always fit the crime. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, we know that the wages of sin is death. So why not just allow the wicked to die? Why is there suffering before death? That's a good question, isn't it? Is it? Why not just let them die? Why is there suffering in the seven last plagues before death? And here's the reason why, friends, is because sin not only brings death, it also brings suffering. It brings suffering and death. Jesus not only died, but he suffered before he died. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in fact, all his life, but especially in Gethsemane, he suffered as sin was being laid upon him. It was so heavy that Christ was on the ground sweating great drops of blood, and he was suffering the mental and emotional agony of guilt and shame that our sins had brought on him. Jesus took our sins, yes. But he not only took our sins, friends, Jesus also took the condemnation, the shame, and the suffering that our sin had inflicted upon him. You see, friends, we live in a world of cause and effect. We will reap that which we have sown. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that, will also, that he also will reap that he will also reap. And he that sows to the what? To his flesh will of the flesh reap what? Corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And so, friends, we reap what we sow. We live in a world of cause and effect. And sin also brings suffering. And so as we sow sin, we're also sowing suffering, and we're going to reap that as well. But friends, here's the point. We will not reap more or less than that which we have sown. 
Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon us, excuse me, for the day of the Lord is near upon the heathen. And then it says, As thou hast done, it shall be what? Done unto thee. You catch that? You reap what you sow. As you have done, it will be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. And so, friends, yes, sin brings suffering, and that's the reason why the wicked will not only die, they're also going to suffer because they are reaping that which they have sown. What they have done is brought upon their own head. And, friends, God is a merciful God. He's going to allow the wicked to choose their own destiny. In fact, notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 8, verse 36. It says, but he that sins against me is wronging who? His own soul. And all they that hate me, what do they love? They love death. You see, when we sin against God, we're not just wronging God, but really we're wronging ourselves. We're reaping to the, we're sowing to the flesh, and we're going to reap that. All those who hate God love death. And therefore, when they die, they're basically getting what they love and that which they have chosen. The Bible says in Hosea 4, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Do you understand what that means? There came a point that Ephraim had become one with the idol that they put before God to the point that you could not separate the idol or the sin from the sinner. The sinner and the sin had become one flesh. And at that point, God, there was nothing God could do to separate the sin from the sinner. They were joined to it because of their own persistent choices. And so God, because he's not a God of force, he has to back up and say, let them alone. They've chosen what they wanted. You see, right now, friends, God has a terrible dilemma. Let me, let me say it like this. God, here's God's problem. How is he going to save the sinner without saving the sin at the same time? And how is he going to destroy the sin without destroying the sinner at the same time? God must destroy sin. Can you say amen? He must put an end to it for the sake and security of the universe. But how does he do that without destroying the sinner? And how does he save the sinner without saving the sin for eternity? The only way God can save the sinner without saving the sin and destroy the sin without destroying the sinner, he must separate the sin from the sinner. Are you with me? And how does he do that? By love. By appealing to us. By a sacrifice on the cross. But if we cho choose to ignore his love, ignore his sacrifice, and ignore the power of God that wants to separate sin from our lives, we'll end up becoming one will that, with that sin. And when God finally destroys sin, the sinner will be destroyed with the sin because they are joined to that idol. Does that make sense? And so, in the destruction of the sin, the sinner will be destroyed too. And that, friends, is not just an act of justice. It's also an act of mercy. The Bible says in Hosea 13 and verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Salvation is within reach of all. If we choose to ignore it, God is not destroying us. 
really we are destroying ourselves. And then notice Revelation 16, 5 and 6, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged us, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are what? They are worthy. Why? Because they are simply reaping that which they had sown. They're reaping the ruin that they had wrought. And God gives them over to their own choice, and thus they're destroyed by the sin that they've chosen. But friends, listen, but first, and so that's the, that's the second reason. The second reason, the punishment of the curse will be in proportion to the crime. But listen, friends, before sin is eradicated, God will make clear the consequences of the choices that we make. And that's the third reason why we find the gospel in the seven last plagues. Number three, write it down. We find that mercy always comes before judgment. Can you say amen? Divine mercy always precedes divine justice and judgment. We find this over and over again in the Bible. Before one drop of water fell upon the world, there was an ark that was made, and whoever wanted to get in could get in the ark. Mercy always comes before judgment. Amen? Before one spark of fire fell upon Sodom, God sent angels to warn the people. And even Abraham interceded on behalf of the, the cities and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, Lord, if you find ten people, will you spare the city for the sake of ten? And God says, yes, I will do it. Mercy always precedes judgment. And by the way, friends, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God sent three angels. At first, there were three. You remember that? The three angels came to Abraham. And that first angel stayed there when Abraham began to intercede. The, basically, the first angel was saying to Abraham, Abraham, the hour of God's judgment has come. And Abraham began to intercede. And then after that, the two angels went to Sodom. And basically, the second angel was like, you need to come out of the city. The third angel, the wrath of God is going to be poured out. Friends, what we see happening back there in Sodom and Gomorrah Mercy came before judgment is an object lesson of what's going to happen to the world, friends. Because before this world is finally destroyed, God is going to send three angels once again. Can you say amen? And they are messengers of mercy. A strong warning. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. We've been studying this night after night in the seminar. The three angels' messages, the first angels' message, the hour of God's judgment has come. The second angel Babylon is fallen. We need to come out of Babylon, come out of the wicked city. <clears throat> and then the third angel, wrath for those who worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. Those who receive the messages of God in the three angels are going to be spared from the judgments. In other words, the judgments are only for the rejectors of God's mercy and God's love. Those who turn from sin will find mercy and pardon and refuge in the Savior. But those who turn from the Savior will find destruction in their sin. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, friends, listen. The seven last plagues implies that there were some first plagues. Isn't that right? When it says seven last plagues, 
if it's the last plagues, that means there also had to be some previous plagues before or some first plagues. And, and what were those first plagues? Well, it was the ten plagues of Egypt. In other words, when you look at what happened to Egypt and when God poured out the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, we will find some amazing parallels to the seven last plagues. Now, during the time of, of, of the Egyptian captivity, God gave to Moses three distinct messages to give to, to Egypt. In the, in, in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, three specific messages, and you find that these messages are paralleled in Revelation. One of the first things God said to uh, Moses to tell Pharaoh is to demand that, that Pharaoh let the people go so that they could go out into the wilderness and rest and worship God. In other words, the first call was a call to rest and true worship. Exodus 5, verse 5. And then the second one was a, a, more, a stronger demand. In Exodus 8, verse 3, it was a call to come out of Egypt completely. Let my people go to completely come out of Egypt. And then the third message you'll find in Exodus 11, verse 4 through 7, is that there was a mark of distinction between those who served God and those who served Him not. So there were these three specific calls given during the first ten, uh, ten plagues of Egypt. And we find that those same three calls is given in the last days. It's called the three angels' messages. The first angel's message is a call to true worship, to worship Him that made all things, Revelation 14, verse 7. The second angel's message is a call to come out of Babylon. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people. And the third angel's message describes those who worship the beast in his image and receive the mark of the beast and how they're going to experience the wrath of God of the plagues. There's a mark of distinction. And so what happened back then is an example of what's going to happen in the last days. And friends, listen, listen. In the last days, only after the third angel's message is given to the world, talking about the mark of the beast versus those who receive the seal of God, it's at that time everyone is going to have to make a choice who they're going to serve, who they're going to follow, if they're going to accept the mark of the beast or the seal of God. And only after people have made their choice will the seven plagues be poured out upon the world. In other words, mercy always comes before judgment. Amen? <clears throat> people, after they make their choice, again, divine mercy precedes divine justice. There is no refuge for the wicked who refuse the gospel message of love. Refusing God's mercy results in suffering God's holy justice. And some individuals believe that we're going to be raptured out of this tribulationary period, but the Bible is clear that God's people are going to go through tribulation, but they're going to be preserved while they are in it. Just like Noah was preserved in the flood, not raptured out of the flood. Noah was in it, but he was preserved during that time. Just like the three Hebrew boys were in the fire, but they were not burned from it. They were preserved. So too, God's people in the last days are going to go through great tribulation, the seven last plagues, but we're not going to be touched by it because God is our sanctuary of refuge. And that's the fourth reason why the seven last plagues is good news, is that God's people will be preserved during the plagues. Can you say amen? So you don't have to be afraid, friends. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus as your sanctuary, as your refuge, 
you don't have to be afraid of the plagues at all. It's not going to touch you. It's only for those who have rejected God's sanctuary, God's refuge. In fact, notice in the book of Revelation, chapter 15, verse 5 through 8, just before the seven plagues are poured out, notice what happens in heaven. And after that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And friends, where is the testimony of the tabernacle? Where is that specifically in the heavenly sanctuary? That's the most holy place. The ark of the testimony is in the most holy place. So what John the Revelator is seeing here, when he sees the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven open, he is looking into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And what is in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testament, which represents the throne of God, which is called the throne of grace. And notice what happens. He sees the most holy place, the throne of God. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the what? The seven plagues, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter where? into the temple to the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So notice something very interesting here, that before the angels come out to pour out the seven last plagues upon the earth, the Bible says that the temple was open, and then no one could enter into the temple. And here's the reason why. By the time, in other words, no one is able to enter the, into the temple of God by faith. Why? Because by that time, probation is closed upon the world. It is finished. Probation is shut. But before probation is closed and before the time of trouble begins, God's people are going to be sealed with the seal of the living God in their foreheads. Remember we studied that? And so, and so, it is only after God's people are sealed do the seven angels pour out the seven vows upon the earth. Why? Because that seal will preserve God's people during the time of the plagues. They're not going to be hurt by it. They're not, they're not going to be harmed by it. They're sealed. They're preserved. They're already safe because their faith is there with Jesus in the most holy place. Can you say amen? Once again, God's mercy precedes God's justice and God's people will be preserved in the time of the plagues. Let's turn our Bibles to Psalms 91. Psalms, the 91st division. Friends, you know this psalm is for those who live in the last days? Psalms 91. Let's read this whole chapter, shall we? <laughs> and then after that, we'll turn to the seven last plagues. <clears throat> psalms 91. Now keep uh, what we just read in Revelation 15 about the temple open. Keep that in mind as we read Psalms 91. The Bible says, Psalms 91, begin with verse 1. If you're there, would you please let me know by saying amen? amen? It says, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, friends, do you know what the secret place of the Most High is? That's the most holy place, the place of ultimate intimacy. It says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall uh, deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His what? 
wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Do you know what it means when it says under his wings? We shall trust. Do you remember in the most holy place? On both sides of the mercy seat were the angels with their wings covering the Shekinah glory. And so to be under God's wings means to be in his presence, to be sitting on the mercy seat with Jesus Christ. So this psalm is for those who will live during the time of the plagues, those who enter into the, to the, the, that place where the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven is open. God's people are there by faith, not literally, but, but by faith. And it's in that sanctuary, in that safe place that they find refuge. That's what this psalm is referring to. Then notice verse 5. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 6 nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh unto thee. Verse 8, only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. So the Bible is saying, talking about God's people, thousands falling at their side, ten thousand at the right hand. That's the wicked who are suffering the seven last plagues. But though they will not come nigh to us. We're seeing it with our eyes because we're in it, but we're, pre we're being preserved while we're in it. And then it says in verse 8 or verse 9, <coughs> because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any what? Plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder and the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. That's referring to Satan himself, trampling him under our feet. Verse 14, why? Because he has set his love upon me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he knows my name and he... Verse 15, he shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in what? Trouble. I will deliver him and honor him, and with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. How many of you love that song? Friends, you ought to memorize that song. I'm working on it myself. God's people will thrive and survive during the plagues. You see, friends, listen, this message of the seven last plagues would be scary if it weren't for the glorious promises of protection that God has given to us. And so, and so, and so, with these precious promises in the forefront of our foreheads, let us turn and look at God's merciful justice in the seven last plagues. Let's turn now to the book of Revelation chapter 15. Revelation, what chapter are we going to? Actually, we're going to chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, as you're turning there, let me remind us that during the time of the Egyptian plagues, during the time of the Egyptian plagues, God poured out His judgment upon the false gods of Egypt. That's the thing you see in the, during the ten first plagues. He poured out His plague upon the Nile River. You know why? Because the Egyptians worshiped the Nile. They were completely dependent upon the Nile River. They looked upon that water as their God. So the true God in heaven pours out a plague upon the Nile River, river to show the Egyptians that their God is not very strong. 
He also pours out His plagues on the livestock and the frogs and the sun. Why? Because these were the gods of, of Egypt. They would worship animals, and they would worship frogs, and they would worship the sun. And so every time God poured a plague, listen, listen, friends, He poured a plague upon an object of false worship to teach man the folly in trusting in false gods. You see, friends, each plague of the seven last plagues does the same thing. Each plague hits an area of sin and false worship. And so the wicked are destroyed by the very thing they love more than God and truth. Does that make sense? That's the reason why the plagues are so specific, falling on specific things. Because everything it touches, everything it affects, it deals with sin and false worship, the very thing that the wicked chose in the place of God Himself. And so here's the point. They are destroyed by the very sin that they loved more than the Savior. They are reaping that which they have sown. So now with that in mind, let's go now through the seven last plagues. We're in Revelation chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. If you're there, would you please say amen? <clears throat> the Bible says, and I, heard the, excuse me, and I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of wrath of God upon the what? <coughs> upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous what? Sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worship his image. And so, friends, write it down. The first plague is a plague of grievous sores on the flesh of those who worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. And, friends, when this plague is poured out upon the wicked in the last days, this first plague will immediately expose the false miracle workers of today. Listen very carefully. False miracles have led millions of people astray. There are people who claim to be followers of Christ, but are not teaching the true gospel of Jesus as found in the Word. And people follow them because they perform signs and wonders and miracle crusades and healing services, and many our individuals are accepting miracles before they will accept a thus saith the Lord and it is written. In other words, you can tell them exactly what the Bible says, but they would rather believe what they see with their eyes, a miracle before them. And friends, when this first plague is poured out, immediately all the false miracle workers are exposed. Why? Because they have the plagues. And as individuals who have these plagues all over their bodies, they're going to run to these miracle workers and, and say, would you please heal me? Would you please take away the, 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 these, these noisome, grievous sores? And lo and behold, those false miracle workers can't do anything because they are, are affected by it as well. False shepherds will not be able to cure the grievous sores of their sheep. They are suffering from the same afflictions. And so that's what the first plague does. It, it exposes the false worshipers of the day. Not only that, but this grievous sore falls upon the flesh of the wicked because it is God's judgment against the sins of the flesh. What are the sins of the flesh? Adultery, fornication, homosexuality. You see, friends, we are a flesh-driven society. We celebrate the flesh we flaunt our flesh in the face of God. And now as the wicked, their flesh is covered with these grievous boils and sores, 
Now the wicked see the folly in trusting in the flesh and in celebrating the flesh, glorifying flesh, flaunting flesh, adorning flesh, trusting in the arm of flesh. That's what the first plague does, friends. It's a judgment upon the sins of the flesh. But thank the Lord that God's people, you and I, we don't have to be afraid, friends, because we are going to, we're, going, we're not going to be harmed by those plagues. Why? Because we trust in the Spirit, and we do not trust in our flesh. Can you say amen? amen. We, we, we walk in the flesh, but we do not trust in the flesh. We, we have a physical body, but we live in the Spirit, and those who live in the Spirit are not going to be harmed by that first plague. Oh, friends, I want to follow the Spirit. How about you? Now we go to the second plague and the third one, which go together. This is a plague of bloody water. Notice what it says now <coughs> in verse 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Verse 4 is the third plague. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. Verse 6, For they, the wicked, have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Here we find the second plague. It affects the waters. The waters turn to blood. And friends, the reason why God does this is because we as society, this world, we love to see blood. We glorify vampires in our world today. We watch vampires. We watch UFC and people getting bloodied. We read books about blood and movies and media. War has shed the blood of millions of God's children. We are a blood-saturated society. The enemy, friends, have spilt the blood of God's people during the dark ages. Over 50 million Christians died during that time period. The human race, even, has been satisfied to shed the blood of God's own beloved Son, Jesus. And when we wanted Him crucified, we even said, let His blood be on us and our children. And that just wasn't the Jewish nation that was saying that they represented all of humanity, friends. We were thirsting for the blood of Christ. We love blood. We drink it. We watch it. We listen to it. We are entertained by blood. And now when the second and third plague is poured out, we see that there's nothing but blood to drink for this blood-thirsty world. And now the wicked sees. They see, friends, that blood does not satisfy and quench the thirst of our soul. And friends, those of us who trust Jesus don't have to be afraid because the Bible says that God's people are going to have some water to drink. In Isaiah 33, verse 16, it says, His water shall be what? His water shall be sure. God's people will drink of the living fountains of waters, and they're going to have enough to drink for themselves. Can you say amen? But the wicked friends, those who love blood, are going to have nothing but blood to drink. They see that blood does not truly satisfy. And then the fourth plague, sun-scorching individuals. Notice what it says in verse 8. It says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched 
with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him what? They still would not give God the glory. Here, this, this, this fourth plague is, is the sun now has power to scorch people. And friends, the reason why is because the sun has always been an object of false worship. So again, God is pouring out his judgments upon the objects of sin and false worship. You see, friends, from the very beginning of time, the sun was worshipped and venerated by man. From ancient Babylonian sun worship to modern Christian sun day worship, people have rejected the rest of the Sabbath. For the first day of the week, the sun day, the sun's day. We love the sun. We worship the sun. We venerate the sun. We build monuments to the sun. And now those who have done these things, the wicked, the very God that they put before the true Lord is now the same God that destroys them. They have no rest or relief from the Son, S-U-N, the God that they have chosen to worship. And it says in the book of Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 11, Behold, all you that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. Once again, friends, they're reaping that which they sowed. They chose to worship the sun. They chose to glorify the sun. They chose the sun's day instead of God's holy day. And now they're destroyed. They are destroyed by the strange fire of the sun that they had kindled. And even in this, they do not repent to give God the glory. And friends, how do we give God glory? Revelation 14 verse 7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Friends, we give God the glory by worshiping Him as the Creator. But these individuals still will not give God the glory. They still will not worship the true Creator. They hold fast to their false worship. And in contrast to the wicked who are being destroyed by the God that they chose, the sun God, God's people are going to be protected from the sun. In the book of Psalms 121, verse 5 and 6, it says that the Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy what? Shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. God's people will walk in the shade and the covert and the protection of the Lord, the true sun, the S-O-N, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen? Now we go to the next plague. Plague number five is a plague of darkness upon the seat of the beast. Notice what the Bible says. Plague number five, we're in verse 10. The Bible says, and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of what? Darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of the pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Here we find, friends, this plague, plague number five, is a plague especially for the seat of the beast, and that, my friends, is the Vatican City. It says darkness covers this place. It's, and the reason why, friends, is because the Vatican City, the seat of the beast, is the kingdom of the dark ages. It is a system that has replaced the light of God's Word with the darkness of tradition, a system that has spread the spirit of darkness that permeates the world even to today. Untold evil, friends, has happened because of this. And not only is it a a, a, a judgment upon the, the kingdom of darkness, but it's also a judgment upon the things that happen in the dark. You see, friends, untold evil happens in the dark. 
in the obscurity of the night, in the clubs, and in the theaters, and in these places of darkness, untold evil. We think that because it's dark, God can't see us, and thus we're bold in, in rebellion. This is what the wicked do, friends. It says in the book of John chapter 3 and verse 20, Christ said, for everyone that does evil does what? Hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And so if we don't love the light, we, will, we love darkness. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love what? Darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They love darkness. Why? Because the darkness seemed to be a cover for their sins. And so if because they love darkness, God gives them what they love. And now darkness is over the land. And with their tongues, the very tongue that they used to perpetuate darkness and deception, they now bite the very tongue they use to curse the light. But while the wicked experience this plague, God's people are not going to be touched by it. Notice what it says in Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2, talking about God's people. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. This world covered in darkness, but God's people are going to shine brightly because the darker the night, the brighter the light. Can you say amen? I want to be in the light. How about you? And then we go to the sixth plague, which is the battle of Armageddon and the drying up of the rivers, the drying up of the waters. Verse 12. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the waters thereof were what? Dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Then Jesus says in verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Verse 16, And they gathered them together into the place called in the Hebrew tongue. What is it called? Armageddon. Now, friends, this plague we're not going to deal with this morning. I have a whole presentation just on this plague alone, the battle of Armageddon. And it's too long to share it right now. So what I'm going to do is when I come back in April, I'll share it with you. Is that all right? So I'll hold you in suspense until then. <laughs> but the main thing I want you to remember from plague number six is the waters are dried up. What happens? The waters are dried up. And then finally, the seventh plague, the last plague in verse 17. <laughs> and the seventh angel poured out his vow into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of, of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. It is what? Keep that in mind, friends. The seventh plague, God says, it is done or it is finished. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great what? Earthquake. So notice, God says, it is done. And there's a great earthquake, such as not once was Excuse me, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, 
and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. <coughs> and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Verse 21. And there fell upon men great what? Great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blaspheming God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So notice, friends, this seventh plague, it is done. It is the final destruction of this whole world that was in rebellion against God. The Bible says that when God says it is done, a great earthquake is going to tear up this world. Sin will finally and completely tear this world apart, and the wicked who made this world their home realize that this is not a safe place to call home. The very foundation is being broken up. They have no foundation, no foundation beneath, and then all of a sudden great hail comes from above. No security beneath, no refuge above. The Bible tells us in Job 38, verse 22 and 23, hast thou entered into the treasuries of snow, or hast thou seen the treasuries of what? Of the hail, which I have reserved, God says, against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. And at that time, the treasury of hail in heaven will be opened up. And hail, friends, uh, that are 65 pounds, hailstones will destroy this world. And so we find the wicked who love this world, destruction from beneath as well as from above. And now the wicked see that this world has no foundation and no refuge for them. They see the folly of trying to make this world their only home, storing up in the world, hoarding up in the world things that had become more important to them than God. Everything they invested in and poured their lives in, their beautiful homes and their luxurious cars and their large bank accounts and their awesome businesses are all destroyed. But friends, we don't have to be afraid because we're not going to be part of that people because this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims on the way to the promised land. Amen? And the Bible says, for those who make heaven their home, in Isaiah 32, verse 17 to 20, it says, and my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places when it shall hail coming down on the forest and the city shall be low in a low place. Friends, when the, the plague of hail comes, God's people have a peaceful, quiet and sure dwelling place. Why? Because God is our foundation, and He is also our sanctuary, our refuge in the time of storm. Can you say amen? And those are the seven last plagues, friends. Once again, God pours out His judgments upon an object of false worship or an object of sin to show the wicked that it did not make any sense to put things before God. And friends, in view of the seven last plagues, in view of God's justice, which is also His mercy, it makes sense to follow Jesus, doesn't it? But many people say, but it's so hard to follow Jesus. It's so hard to be a Christian. It's hard to keep the Sabbath. It's hard to obey God's law. It's hard to give up sin. It's hard to pray and to study the Bible. Sometimes I don't feel like it. It's so hard to go against the crowd. It's not hard, friends. It's easy to follow Jesus because Jesus said, come unto me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, when you think about the other option, it makes sense to serve Jesus. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. 
But Christ said, we follow him and let him be in control. He said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Friends, let me tell you what's going to be hard as we begin to close this morning. In reality, what is going to be hard? It's going to be hard, friends, when the seven plagues are poured out. That's going to be hard. When the grievous sores cover the bodies of the wicked, when bodies are covered with boils, with pus oozing and blood flowing, the wicked will not be able to sit down, stand up, lay down, or get any relief. They're screaming in pain and agony. That's hard. But the righteous will walk around free of pain and in perfect health. That's easy. Amen? What's going to be hard is when the wicked open up the faucet during the second and third plague, and they're wanting something to drink, but out of the faucet comes blood. They try to take a shower, but blood comes out. Their bodies stinking with filth, and their mouths parch with thirst. They're going to long for just a cup of cold water, but there's nothing to drink. And when that time comes, that's going to be hard. But friends, for the righteous, we're going to have enough water for us to drink. Our bread and water is going to be sure. That's going to be easy. Amen? It's going to be hard when the fourth plague is poured out. To be burned by the sun and by fire hurts, friends. If you ever had a sunburn, it hurts. And as the wicked experience this plague, they will wail in agony. Why did I not choose to worship and serve the true creator God? Why did I follow the sun? Why did I put other things ahead of him? And friends, that moment is going to be hard. But for the righteous, we're going to walk around in the fire and not, we're not going to be burned. And that's going to be easy. The fifth plague is going to be hard when darkness is so dense that people will not know where to go or what to do. They're not going to be able to see anything, and they're going to gnaw their tongues in pain. When that happens, it's going to be hard, but the righteous will have the light of life shining from within, and that's going to be easy. Can you say amen? In the battle of Armageddon, when the nations are gathered together and the wicked realize that they're on the losing team in the battle, they realize that they've, they've not chosen that which is right, and they see that God is the victor in the battle of Armageddon. When the wicked realize that they're on the wrong side, oh, that's going to be hard. But for the righteous who have King Jesus as their general, oh, it's going to be easy. And finally, the seventh plague, when the earthquake rips the foundation under the feet of the wicked and the hail falls from above, the wicked will long for a safe refuge from the hail, but there will be none in sight. The earthquake rips the ground under their feet. They're going to look for a sure foundation to stand upon, but there will be none. In that time, it's going to be so hard, but the righteous are going to ascend to meet the Lord in the air, and they're going to enter into the, into the city of God whose foundation is made of gold, and God is the everlasting refuge. And when that happens, it's going to be easy. Amen? Oh, friends, it makes sense to follow Jesus. But how do we follow him? when we naturally don't feel like it? What makes it easy to follow Jesus when naturally many times we just don't feel like it? Here's what makes it possible, and this is what we close on, the most potent and beautiful point of this whole presentation. Don't miss this. That which makes it possible to follow Jesus, even when we don't feel like it, is when we go to Gethsemane and realize that Jesus experienced the pain of every single plague himself. That Christ experienced 
the seven last plagues. Look at this. In Matthew 26, verse 39, sin was being laid upon Christ. And notice what he prayed. And he went a little farther, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou art. Friends, do you know what cup this was? The cup of the wrath of God that only the wicked will experience at the end of time in the seven last plagues. That same cup of wrath, God's holy wrath against sin, was in the hand of Jesus, not literally. And he was to drink that cup in its fullness, to take the suffering that sin brings upon himself. And as that cup trembled in his hand, Jesus prayed that he wouldn't have to drink it. He didn't feel like doing it, friends. If it's possible, Father, let it pass. Let it pass. He didn't feel like dying for us, friends. He didn't feel like taking our sins. If there's another way, Father, let it pass. And then he prayed. He prayed this three times, friends. Notice, Matthew 26, 42, he went again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Thy will be done. The only way we can follow Jesus when we don't feel like it. Get up and pray when we feel like sleeping in. Compromising, rationalizing, despite what God says. The only way we can continue to move forward in faith when we feel like giving up is when we understand that Jesus felt like giving up, but He did not. He prayed not for His will to be done. He said, Thy will be done. And he went forward despite the human feelings that were going against it. And he drunk the cup, friends. He drunk it to its, it to its dregs. And he experienced every one of the plagues, either in reality or in type, did Jesus experience the plagues. Did he experience the first plague of the grievous sores? His whole body was filled with sores, friends. Sores that we inflicted on him. He experienced that first plague when he was whipped over and over again. The flesh was torn from his body, the crown of heads and, uh, of thorns embedded in his flesh. He was bruised and broken and bleeding. Not only that, but he experienced the second and third plague. Nothing but blood, 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 and more blood. He sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane. And all throughout the ordeal, nothing but blood, he experienced the second and third plague, which is a plague of blood. Not only that, but he experienced the fourth plague, scorching fire. This one in type. 
Because remember, friends, when the lamb was was slain in the antitypical service, the lamb was consumed by fire on the altar. And friends, that represents the cross. Jesus was consumed completely by our sins. He experienced the fourth plague in type. Oh, he also experienced that fifth plague, darkness. Gross darkness around. No light in sight, friends. The Bible tells us that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Jesus was dying in the darkness so that we could live in the light. He experienced that plague. He was drinking the cup till its dregs. He also experienced the sixth plague, the sixth plague, which was the drying up of the waters. When Jesus said, I thirst, no water to drink. He experienced it, friends. He also experienced the seventh plague when Jesus said, it is finished. And a great earthquake took place. You see, friends, the plagues are a fearful thing. But we cannot serve God because we are afraid of hell. We must serve God because of what He did for us on the cross. He took our sins and the suffering it brings. And because of His perfect love demonstrated at the cross, perfect love cast out fear from our hearts. It makes sense to serve Jesus. How many of you are thankful for Jesus? This morning, how many of you want Him to be your protector and your preserver during the time of the plagues. As their heads are bowed, as their eyes are closed. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in His place. But Jesus, God's Son, took my place. You're the one. I was the one that put him there. But he took our place. Allow that reality to change your life. Dear Lord, we want to thank you so much for your infinite love. Thank you so much for taking our place on the cross. For the sacrifice taking our debt and paying it in full. Lord, we pray that that truth would change us completely this morning and make us new people. Bless us now as we give this last invitation. Give your people courage to respond. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, I want to ask those who are being baptized today, If you just come, come down to the front for special prayer. All those who are planning on being baptized today, would you please come at this moment? Slip out of the pew. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you so much, dear God, for your love and your mercy. Thank you for accepting us this morning just as we are. 
and for your love that never leaves us as we are. The love that dispels fear from our hearts. The love that offers us a safe sanctuary during the time of the plagues. <coughs> Thank you so much, dear God, that we don't have to be afraid. Because you said, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And Lord, we receive it now by faith. I want to pray for those who've come to the front, these who've taken it a step further and, and are going to be baptized today and others being baptized in April and others preparing. Please bless them. Write their name in the book of life. May nothing blot it out. And help these to never, never turn back. Send angels to protect us. Send your spirit to fill us and anoint us. And Lord, make us ready for your coming. This is our prayer. And we thank you for Jesus that took our plagues, our pain, and drank the cup for us so that we wouldn't have to drink it. We bless your name and we thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank God. Amen. Amen.